invite some of your friends and neighbours to hear Kimberley. In fact, just yesterday, um, Sue and I invited one of our neighbours who has no church experience whatsoever, doesn't know what Christianity is, um, but has some health issues. So we just sent her a message. We've had them in for coffees and that sort of thing, for a meal with the family. And she's coming along on, uh, to the afternoon tea in two weeks' time. So Sue's going to bring her. I've invited her husband, so he, you know he's thinking about coming as well. Always put the invite out there. Because whether they say yes or no is not your concern. Your concern is God prompts you to do that, that you're obedient in doing it. You don't have to worry about whether they say yes or no. They can say whatever they want to say, but invite them because they do say yes from time to time, like happened to us just yesterday afternoon. So please invite them. There are brochures on the, the display rack out there if you want to take an invite to actually invite someone along. Now, if you're visiting with us or you're new to the church, um, we're actually in a network of five different churches around Victoria, and um, I'm just part of the team um, that actually helped to run some of those churches. Our senior leader, Nick, he's actually speaking this morning in our church in Box Hill. So that's why he's not here. Um, our campus pastor here at Uni Hill, Charles, and his wife and family, they've been, been on annual leave, so they're not here this morning. So you're stuck with me. Yeah. That's nice. Don't cheer, just send money. That's fine. <laughs> uh, I'm only joking. So... Th- that's why they're not here uh, at the moment, but, um, you know, just in terms of you trying to, if you don't know who people are, I'm part of the team as well. Hey, I've got a handout for you this morning. So on the left-hand side of each row in the pocket, there is a bunch of little handouts. Just take one and pass them down the row because I want to encourage you to take notes today. You're going to get a little bit of um, teaching. And so um, I know for my personal learning... The only way I often retain information is if I write things down in my own words because you can't just memorise things from somebody else's point of view because we all think and speak and record things down differently. So you don't have to do it. I'm just encouraging if you want to do it, there's a hand out there. So I'm going to talk about injustice and giving. If you're here about two weeks ago, I actually talked about um, around money and the whole thing of the the parable of the servant who was actually quite scrupulous and did some wrong things, but Jesus actually recommends that story as part of how our encounter with God should change what we do with money. And so I'm going to sort of follow on from that, but I'm going to talk a little bit out of Malachi, which is actually the last book in the Old Testament. And um, so you're going to get, I'm going to race through it because there's a lot of stuff I want to sort of give you a big picture and then give you three principles that I think are in Malachi for us today as New Testament believers. So I'm talking about injustice and giving. And again, you may never have thought of putting those two words together. Injustice and giving. Now some of us may have thought of putting those two terms together. When we think about poverty, we think about refugees, we think about countries that have civil wars or invasions and all the problems that that creates. But... um, Most of the time we never think about injustice and when we're required to give and what's the relationship between the two. Now, you work hard for your money, right? You work hard for your money? Sounds like a song. I'm not singing that song, but it sounds like a song. Hey, so can you just give me my phone? It's in there. Just so I keep an eye on the time. It's inside the Bible cover. Yeah, thanks. You don't want to hear me talk too long, right? So I'm just making sure I know what the time is. So you work hard for your money. Now, we just took up 
tithes and offerings in our church. We do it every week. Most churches do it. The last thing you want to happen when we take up giving is to feel guilt or under obligation. Now, certainly the way that we do, have done our giving traditionally at Uni Hill Church is we're not, we're not trying to make you feel that you have to contribute. And so what is this whole thing about giving? What is, you know, we, you might hear the word tithe. It's a strange word. What does that actually mean? Does God actually still require us to give a tithe, which is literally just um, an Old Testament phrase that means one-tenth? So tithe just, just literally interpreted as one-tenth. Does God still require us in our modern culture to, to contribute in all sorts of giving or does he not? What, what's, what actually does the whole Bible teach us around this? Are we expected to give personally? Am I supposed to actually give either every week or once, once every now and then or occasionally? These are some of the questions we're going to look at today. Now Malachi, the next slide you'll see the verse come up. I'm going to focus on one particular verse but also give you some context. So Malachi chapter 3 and verse 8. And if you've got a Bible, if you've actually got a on your phone or your tablet um, or if you've got a, a print Bible, just to open it up because I encourage you to put some notes in there as well. So this is what Malachi 3, 8, 10 says. And this is God speaking to, his, to the Israelites. God says, does a mere mortal or just is, does a human being rob God, yet you rob me? And the people ask, well, how do we rob? How are we robbing you? And God says, in tithes, so there's that word one-tenth, and offerings. And then he goes on to say, you're under a curse. In fact, the whole nation at this time was suffering because they weren't giving. And he says, because you're robbing me. So notice three times we get this word rob. You're robbing God. How are we robbing you? God says, you're not giving your tithes and offerings, so you're robbing me. So three times, this repetitious idea of stealing or robbing from God. So verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not room enough to store it. Anybody heard that in a giving talk? You heard it preached. Often it gets quoted. What does it actually mean? Because, you know, Malachi was written so long ago He's writing to the children of, of Israel who are living in Jerusalem in a very specific period going through some circumstances that are different to ours. So let me give you the historical context and you'll see this on the next slide. So in Malachi's world, when he writes these words, about 500 years before Jesus was born, the Israelites are living in exile, which literally means they'd been taken captive by the Persian Empire And literally, the Persians had taken the whole nation, all of the people, into their country. And Jerusalem effectively became a little outpost of the Persian Empire. So effectively, they were ruling it through power. They'd overtaken Jerusalem. They took all the people back to Persia with them. Jerusalem's empty. There's nobody living there. The city's in ruins. Now, the king at the time of Persia actually allows a Jewish prophet called Ezra to take a group of people sometime later, a group of Jews, to go back and resettle Jerusalem. Because from the king's point of view, even though he's Persian, this is actually part of his empire and outpost. And they'd been asking to go back. And so he says to Ezra, you take them back. It's okay. Go ahead and start to re-inhabit your city. 
They wanted to go back to their city of their ancestors and history. But it's not just about a physical resettlement from Ezra's point of view. And you can read this in Nehemiah and those sort of books. From Ezra's point of view, he wants to not just help the rest of the Israelites resettle the city after being absent from it and it lying in ruins for so long. He also wants to reinstitute a covenant lifestyle with their God. Because in Persia, that had been lost. They hadn't been able to practice their covenant-keeping behaviours, like giving, like temple worship, you know, all the things, like give, feeding the poor, all these things that they, God required them to do when the old law was first given to them. When they live in exile, they couldn't practice these things. So from Ezra's point of view, he's taking a whole group of them back, not all of them, but he takes a large contingent and says, we're going to resettle the city of Jerusalem, but we are also going to get back into covenant living Everyday covenant relationship with Yahweh. That was the point that Ezra was trying to do. So 13 years pass. Ezra's done that. 13 years pass. During that 13 years, without Ezra or some form of godly leader in in Jerusalem as they're rebuilding and resettling and practicing getting back to a covenant living with God, they actually stop doing the things they promised Ezra they would do. So they stop looking after the poor. They stop bringing tithe into the temple. They stop doing all the things that they actually represented their covenant with God. So that leads us to another man called Nehemiah. You heard of Nehemiah? The main thing we remember about him, 13 years later, he, takes, he goes back to Jerusalem that's still being resettled and he says, we have to rebuild the walls around the city. Because in an ancient culture, a city that doesn't have walled defence is actually vulnerable to any attack. So Nehemiah says, let's go back and rebuild the walls. And you can read it in Nehemiah, the whole story. It's an incredible story. He, re- he manages to get so many people involved who are living there and he gets resources from Persia to do the job that they rebuild all the city walls in 52 days. It's an incredible story. Now, Nehemiah actually lives there for another 12 years but again, he's, he not only is about the walls, he, if you read the whole story of Nehemiah, he's actually interested in getting the Israelites back to worshipping God according to their covenant. So he's building on what Ezra did before him, 13 years before him. And so then Nehemiah is actually called back to Persia. He's actually like a government official in Persia, even though he's Jewish. And so he has to go back and do his official duties in Persia. During his absence... The whole thing declines again. People stop worshipping in the temple. Corruption begins to develop. There's a whole lot of problems. The people just sort of dissipate their practices in following God. This is the moment where Malachi is written. So in terms of the structure of where the story fits in the timeline of the Bible, Nehemiah actually returns for a second visit. We're not sure how long before his first visit and second visit, The Bible doesn't tell us that, but this is his second visit. And in fact, this time, he is very firm as a leader. In fact, if you read the story, he actually sacks a whole lot of religious and and godly men because they're totally corrupt. And he basically reinstalls other people who have God's heart to run the temple, to run the nation. But he's he's very harsh in his leadership because he basically says, look, we've tried to do this a number of times. This time we're going to get it right. So, you know, it's a bit like The Apprentice. You're fired. You know, he turns up, 
fires a bunch of people who are supposed to be the spiritual leaders. And this is where most theologians believe that Malachi is written because it's dealing with the people who are not actually living in covenant relationship with God. So that's our, our summary of the context of when the book was written. And it teaches us really an important principle overall that when things aren't going well for any of us, how easy it is to slip away from our relationship with God. That's really what it's teaching us. Because we have similar experiences from time to time. When we have our own problems, our own struggles, we tend to stop our covenant relationship through Christ. And we focus on other things. And so that's really what we learn from it. Now, in the book itself, go, let's go to the next slide. I don't know, ever tried to read Malachi? Who's ever read Malachi? It's only four chapters. It's not very long. It's very short. Does anybody understand what on earth he's talking about? It's, it's structurally, it's, it's not sort of, again, written in English, so it's got a, an interesting structure. If, it literally has six arguments or six disagreements between God and the Israelites. And you can easily find them, actually, if you want to read the whole book this week during your prayer and fasting week, just look for the phrases that say, but you say. So often when God, God sort of gives them a charge against them, says, you're doing this, and you say to me, but how are we doing this? If you find those little phrases, you'll, that's like the start and the stop of the six little arguments between God and the Israelites. So it's like, it's like when you're having a discussion with a friend and you disagree on something. There's six disagreements that the book, the book's actually not easily um, digested in four chapters. It's more like the six little disagreements that God and the Israelites are working out together. It's like a conversation. You're listening into a conversation. So here they are. The first one is, the Israelites say, God, do you really love us? Have you ever said that to God? Do you really love us? We're stuck in this city. We're trying to rebuild it. Corruption's rife. We're still ruled by the Persians. Um, Historians tell us that their neighbours, the Samaritans, were giving them all sorts of trouble at the same time. Um, Famine was common. Their crops weren't succeeding. And so... Because of all this struggle and pain and suffering they're going through, the book opens with this idea of, hey, God, do you really care about us at all? That's really what they're saying to God. It's very strong language. And so we have this idea of God saying, well, of course I care about you. And if you, again, if you read the book, he actually says to them, haven't I done this for you? So he mentions a little bit about Edom, which was sort of like the enemies of Israel. And he's saying, haven't I kept them at bay? And so that's the first disagreement. The second disagreement is they've been bringing unacceptable sacrifices into the temple. Now, in this Old Testament culture, one of the ways they worship God is they would bring in animals to be sacrificed to God, but the animals had to be perfect. They couldn't have any sort of deformity or blemish because it was a reflection of their honour towards their God. But what had happened was, again, if you read the book in this second sort of disagreement between them and God, is they were bringing animals that were blind and deformed. So really what they were doing is any animals in their herds that they couldn't use to, to keep their herds reproducing, they were giving the scraps to God. And it's interesting because God actually says to them in the end of that paragraph... He says, you may as well shut the temple down. Will someone just close the doors? Let's not do this anymore. Which is an incredible thing for God to say. 
It'd be like, in our modern context, it'd be like God saying to us, none of us are giving to God, let's shut the church down. Let's forget it. Very strong language. But it's because, again, one of the, the other things God says at this point, he says to them, you don't even treat your human rulers that way. You give your governor or your mayor, so that actually was Nehemiah half the time, you at least give him your best as a sign of your love for him and you don't even do that to me. Let me just read it for yourself. It's an interesting way that God structures his argument about the way they're treating him by bringing unacceptable sacrifices. Then the third thing, the third argument they have with God is one of the things they couldn't do was marry people from other pagan religions. Now, not because God's against marrying people from other cultures. It's because what was happening is those other religions were getting airtime and actually getting focus through those interrelationships that developed. So as the pagan cultures around them would marry some of the Jewish men, some of those pagan religious started to be practised in Jerusalem and actually at some point in history they even got practised in the temple that was dedicated only for Yahweh. And so God's not against intermarriage. It was the issue of them bringing other religions into the culture or other gods, actually worshipping other gods. The fourth argument they have with God, in fact, God brings this one up. He says, you've been talking very cynically about me. What sort of justice does our God bring? That's what, that's what they've been saying. What sort of justice? If our God's a God of justice, why are we still being ruled by the Persians why are we still having trouble? Why, why is corruption in, our, in Jerusalem? You know, why are rents so high? Land is so high? Our crops are failing? What sort of justice is this God? If we've been following you, aren't you supposed to be a God of justice? So God says, hey, boys, girls, you're being a bit cynical here. And what God actually says at that point, he says, you want justice? Do you realise if I bring justice, I bring it to everybody at the same time? Again, you can read it for yourself. Now, we don't think about that. I don't know if you ever cried out to God for an injustice you've been suffering. So we go through stuff we don't like. But what God says here is, whoa, if you want to call down some justice from me, just understand it's not just them that get it. You get it at the same time. Everybody is going to be judged at the same time. Do you really want me to turn up? That's effectively what God says to them. Interesting, isn't it? Some great parallels for us as, as, as New Testament Christians here because we do the same sort of things. Our culture might be different. Our circumstances are different from the story of Malachi, but the principles are exactly the same. We've got to be careful when we say, hey, God, what's going on here? This person's been able to do this to me. I've been suffering this. Why don't you drop, you know, get rid of them? Oh, you want me to get rid of them? Just remember, if I come and, and judge, everybody, the whole earth gets judged at the same time, including you. Do you really want that to happen? So there's the fourth thing. The fifth thing, God actually, by his own sort of initiation says, but let me tell you how to return to me. Let's get this covenant lifestyle back together. God actually doesn't particularly want to judge them. He wants to get back in relationship with them. So he actually initiates this conversation, how do we return to God? And to avoid this justice that you've been crying out for because you've been suffering, God says, all you have to do, and this is where our verse falls, Malachi 3, 8 to 10. 
This is in this discussion, in this fifth little disagreement, this verse falls, where God says, well, actually, if you want to avoid my judgment, you have to actually start giving. That's one of the things you can do. You have to actually stop bringing in other religions through marriage into my holy city and into my temple. You have to start living according to the covenant that we set up together, that you agreed. If you want my love, my protection, my provision, you have to actually start living under what you agreed to do. And I'll give you all those things. That's where our verse falls. And the last thing is the last few verses between chapter 13 and and chapter 4 is, again, God actually says it's, it's arrogant to say it's futile to follow God. Because, again, that's what they'd been saying. In their suffering, they were saying, well, what good is it having a relationship with, with God anyway? It's, it, it doesn't help us. What sort of God are we following here? Now, again, they're being influenced by other pagan religions and corruption and famine and there's all this suffering that's going on. So all these six arguments have the same root cause and that is in a moment of our suffering where we think that injustice is coming on us and we feel that God is not there for us, we start blaming him and actually our behaviour, our lifestyle would indicate that we no longer want to have a relationship with him because he hasn't intervened when we've demanded it. This is the theme and again which holds truth for us today in Malachi. So, it's a graphic indicator of us staying in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It teaches us something today. Now, our covenant is slightly different, absolutely, but the truth is still the same. When we're suffering, it's so easy to blame God and demand things from God, and God says, well, hang on a minute. If you really want me to turn up, you don't know what you're asking. And the way you get back in relationship with me is do what I've already asked you to do. If you really want me to treat you as a child and me as your father, you're not acting like one of my children. If you want me to love you, you have to love me as well. So this is, this is the tone or the principles that we learn. So, tithing, giving. What does the Old Testament really teach about giving overall? So I don't know if you've heard a lot of sermons on tithing, and I'm not making this a talk on tithing today. This is more about a general overall giving. But if you've heard talks or sermons and teachings on tithing... Often you hear we have to give 10% back to God, which is one of the Old Testament verses. But did you know, so this is on on the next slide about um, what does the Old Testament teach about tithing? Did you know there's not one tithe in the Old Testament? There's not two tithes that they had to give. There were actually three tithes. That's three 10%. Now, I'm hopeless at adding up, but even I can work out that's 30%. Right? Not 10%. There's three tithes. So the way it worked, you'll see this on the screen here, one-tenth was given to support the priest and the Levites. They were the ones in charge of running the temple. So when the temple existed, it doesn't exist anymore, it was destroyed, the second temple, in fact, during this era, the second temple was rebuilt. When Malachi, with this whole story of Malachi, Nehemiah, Ezra, that's when they rebuilt the temple. But then after Jesus you know the Romans came in and laid flat Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem at least in in our modern world, and so the temple's no longer there. But while the temple existed, the tribe of the Levites were responsible to run the worship system. So sort of a a modern-day sort of link for us is basically what we're doing this morning, is actually 
who's organising the church, who's organising the worship, and all those things to actually get together and worship God as a collective um, family, children of God, even for us today, and for Malachi, his time, it costs resources to do it. We have to, you know, I mean, the chair you're sitting on, someone's purchased, the building we're worshipping in, someone's actually, money's come out of someone's pocket in the past, and it just, it just costs resources to collectively come together and worship God. That's always been the case from the Old Testament times to today and will continue to be so until Jesus returns. It takes all of us to make worship happen when we want to gather together. It takes resources to do that. And so this is, this is one of the things that we see one-tenth every year, every family had to give one-tenth and the Levites would collect it they would actually live off that tenth for the year and they'd also help other poor people from that tenth as well. That's what happened in the Old Testament. Now, the second tenth that people had to bring every year to God in the Old Testament was actually for sacred festivals. They had three festivals every year and they're all different. So you've heard of Pentecost, right? So we know for us the day of Pentecost in the New Testament story after Christ is when the Holy Spirit was poured out. But they, the Jews celebrate Pentecost as well, not around the Holy Spirit, but it's a godly festival. They'd have a festival for the temple, that is when they'd actually focus on the temple itself, and they'd have a festival of harvest, where they'd know that God is the one that makes all things grow and gives them the provisions they need. So they do these three festivals every year, and another tenth was required to make those festivals happen. Now, every third year, so not every year, every third year, they would have to give another tenth. So it's basically 20% every two years, if you want to be technical, minimum. They had other offerings they would often bring as well, but minimum they'd give God 20%. And then every third year, another tenth was added. So it was 30% in that third year. And they, that was specifically to help widows, orphans, and people who were living in poverty, who were destitute. And that was collected and distributed amongst the poor. And again, us Christians do all those three things, don't we? We get together and worship. Don't we do that? We celebrate different festivals towards God and through, either through missions or locally through the Hope Centre, we're helping people in need. I mean, that, and it takes resource to do that. It takes the human material resource to make that happen. Now, if you're good at mass, what's the average every year? I don't know if anyone can tell me, but it's, I wrote it down because I'm not good at maths. I had to get the calculator out. It's 23.3% over a three-year period that Jews were required to give, not 10. So what are the lessons around what, Malik, what can we take from this historical story, grab the principles, and what can we learn from this particular historical writing about injustice and giving? So on the, I think on the other side of your handout there, I've got three things and they'll come up on the screen one by one. Here's the first one. Injustice by revolting against God. See, so to me, as I study this book and the history, I just see so much irony, how we can cry out to God about our suffering and how unfair it is, but then if we don't keep our covenant relationship with God, we are perpetrating another form of injustice. But we're so focused on our own pain and difficulty and struggle and suffering, we actually don't think 
that by complaining to God about how unfair and how tough, how difficult things are, why we actually don't worship God or we don't give to God or we, you know, we're not obedient to God, that we actually think we're right in complaining about the stuff we're going through while at the same time withdrawing from God. And we revolt against him through our behaviour, sometimes through our words. And to me, it's ironic. We complain to God about an injustice while we ourselves practice a different form of injustice. But we think we're justified in the complaint. We feel that we're, oh, I'm not actively involved in evil, Greg, you know. I'm faithful to my spouse. I come to church. I pray. I'll be fasting this week, Greg, with the rest of the church. But here's the irony. But if we withdraw from other things that God has asked us to do, we're separating ourselves from the father-child relationship that we wanted in the first place. And that's a form of injustice. We revolt. And we don't see it. They didn't see it in the time of Nehemiah because they thought they were justified in complaining about one form of injustice that they couldn't see they're practising another form. And so God has to say to them, you can bring your complaints to me, but (laughs) are you living in relationship with me? That's the bigger question. I can provide, I can protect you, I can heal you, I can restore you. We can make this thing happen. But before you pour out all your complaints about what you think I should be doing for you, are you living in relationship with me? We revolt and we practice a different form. It's not overt. I actually think a lot of the way we revolt against God is subtle. We think it's justified. We get so incensed about the pain and the difficulty that we go through, understandably, but then we become blinded by the behaviour that often we contribute to by starting to separate ourselves from a lifestyle of relationship with our God. So here's a lesson. Don't complain to God about its form of injustice if you're practising a different one. I wouldn't be doing that. Here's the second thing. You might be thinking, well, how do, I, how, how do we, how does Christians contribute to a form of injustice? Well, this is, this is the thing that really jumped out at me while I was digesting this whole story and, and, you know, the feeling, the emotion, the history, just sort of trying to put myself in the story and the drama of Malachi and, and Nehemiah and all the stuff that's going on, is it's the second one is injustice by being religious. We think we're so religious, but when we stop giving in any form, our hearts, our minds, our time, our finances our service to God, when we stop being generous in the way that we relate to our God, we think we're being religious. Well, if God did this for me, I'd now do that for him. It's a form of religiosity. It's a, but it's a form of injustice against God. And so, again, it's so subtle. We say, I'm not doing drugs, I'm not sleeping around, I'm not, you know, I'm not... Fighting with people in the middle of the night. You know, we had, we had some kids down our street last night waking us up, ripping up plants and all that sort of stuff. I don't do those sort of things. We think evil is always overtly aggressive. But some forms of injustice are so passive, we don't see it. We're blinded by our own religiosity. That's why 
we have this very unique phrase. It only appears in Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, robbing God. And God's not saying, let's face it, God doesn't need our money. God doesn't need our resource. I mean, God created all things, sustains all things. It's not that we're paying God for salvation. It's none of that stuff. You know, just because you give or you think you give a whole lot and you give sacrificially, you don't get more salvation than people who don't do that stuff. That's not the, that's not the issue here. The issue is, are we in relationship with our God? Because if we're in full relationship with God, we're not going to act all pious and religious and say, well, God, if you had done that for me, I would have given today on Sunday. That's a form of injustice against God. And in fact, you think about the three things that God has always asked his people to give towards. That is corporate worship. So for us, what we do on a Sunday. God's all, even in the Old Testament, God's always wanted other nations to know him. That cost finances, so the preaching of the gospel in our language we call it. So whether we send someone to preach somewhere, um, whether it's here or overseas, whether we're involved in a mission project where they're actually um, giving the gospel message for the first time to people to hear it. Um, The third thing is looking after the poor. So whether it's through the Hope Centre, whether it's through some mission project where we're feeding people or, you know, the meals that we do here for those in need, we give out vouchers. All that stuff has always been required by God's people in every generation. And so to sit there and say, well, I'm not giving to that because God hasn't answered my prayer. Do you know, you're brutalising your own relationship with God. You don't see it. You think you're being holy or right, righteous. You think you're righteous. And so God says to the Israelites at this time in history, whoa, you're actually robbing me. Now, we're not robbing God, are we? Think about it. It's not a literal phrase, but it's a phrase, it's like a metaphor to capture your attention that the things that you know God's always, the things that are close to God's heart that he says, I want you to be involved in, whether it's through financial giving or serving, whatever it is, the things close to God's heart, if we're close to God, we'll do those things. And so when you say, I'm not doing that, God, because you haven't done that for me, it's a form of injustice. In fact, we perpetrate it, listen to this carefully, and this is the issue in the Old Testament covenant, they're perpetrating more poverty by withholding their giving. Because they didn't live in a welfare system that we live in. So if the Jewish people stopped tithing as required, the people who lived it in abject poverty would not survive. Well, you're contributing to the same injustice you're complaining about. Do you understand that? Now, it's one thing when we're on the receiving end of someone's giving. Isn't that great? Anyone ever got something out of the blue, unexpected, you had a need, someone either gave you money, they've bought you something, how does it feel? So we like it when other Christians actually keep their faithfulness with God by responding and sacrificially sowing in and giving generously to a need we had. But then when God taps us on the shoulder and says, hey, what about you? Well, God, if you had answered this prayer, I would have given today. How ludicrous do we sound? It's crazy, isn't it? But we're blinded, I think, because of our own injustice of suffering. We feel it's so important that God rescues us instantaneously from all the difficulties we ever face. And so one of the natural things is to distance ourselves from the God that can actually protect, provide and save us. We don't realise our behaviour 
breaks or interferes with the covenant-loving relationship that God so desperately wants us to hang on to. So here's the third thing. Injustice in our relationship with God. I'm going to actually read to you a couple of verses from the start of Malachi because it sets the tone for the whole book and it's the issue that God is really addressing through all their six disagreements together. And so if you ha- uh, it's not on the screen, but if you have your Bibles there, you can just look at chapter 1 of Malachi. So it's the last book in the Old Testament, easy to find. It wasn't the last book to be written, but it's the last book in the sequence in which it's placed in our scriptures. And so here it is. It's got an oracle, um, which, you know, you, you have seen the matrix. We all know what oracle means these days, right? So it's an oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now look at verse 2. Have, I have loved you, says the Lord. But the people ask, you ask, how have you loved us? So it says, you know, was not Esau's brother Jacob? The Lord actually talked to them about that he's been protecting them from their enemy, Edom. So he says, well, look, that's an expression of my love. Now, if you go down to verse 6, God says this to them in this same discussion about whether God really loves them. He says simply this. A son honours his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honour due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due to me, says the Lord? When God asks a rhetorical question, don't answer it, by the way. <laughs> the answer is pretty obvious. They're not, you can call, this is the principle, you can call God your father and God is our father wants to be our father, a loving, caring, protecting, nurturing, providing father. You can call God your father, but if you stop acting like one of his children, you're the one that's moving away from him. And here's the irony I see in this, right? The irony is we give God an injustice in our relationship with him while we're finger-pointing why he's not rescuing us with this, this and this. We're not acting like one of his children. It's so, to me, it's, it's so ironic. We just never see it. And so God is saying, hey, this is a form of injustice in our relationship. Let me put it this way. You, you, when you argue with God and you have, you've, you've formed a relationship with God through Jesus, when you argue with God, you're doing it as his child. Do you understand that? So we're using our relationship that God initiated to bring us into his family. We're using it as a basis to argue with him, but we're not living like one of his children would normally live. That's how I see it. Now, I'm not saying you can't bring your issues to God and complain to God about things. I actually think that's biblical. But you better be actually acting and living as a child of God if you're going to do that. And that includes our giving. It includes all of, you know, God wants our heart. He doesn't need our cash. Giving is always about generosity. It's, not, it's about our heart. It's about our relationship with him. When you love somebody, I bet you give to them. I bet you you're willing to go and spend your hard-earned money to actually provide either a gift or something that they need. And most of the time you don't think twice about it. That's the sort of relationship God wants to have with us. This is not about a rule. This is not about, you know, an amount. This is about a relationship we have. 
We can't use the relationship as a child of God to argue with God on why we won't give towards what he's interested in. It's backwards. So we do injustice by revolting, we do injustice by being religious and we do injustice to our relationship with God. So let me bring this to a close. What does you think, some of you are probably thinking, well, hang on, Greg, the New Testament is where we live. We don't live in the Old Testament. This is Old Testament teaching. That's true. I'm glad you asked that question. So let me say, what does the New Testament teach on giving? Now, I'm only going to give you a snapshot, but I wanted to bring it into our current covenant through Jesus and our current world that we live in. So here's a snapshot around what does the New Testament teach about giving. It's only a snapshot. There are plenty other verses. I've just pulled a couple of the probably ones that we often hear. And I want to show you that there's a theme that runs through all of them. So the snapshot around giving in the New Testament. This is what it really looks like. You can see on the screen there that Paul talks about a weekly collection that was taken up in the church in in Corinth, a a city um, where the church met in someone's home and weekly they would give what they could to help Paul. They'd actually give the money to Paul to preach the gospel. And it's in that verse, in that sort of story, you can see I've got the, the verse at the bottom of the screen there. And again, we hear this often preached in around a giving sermon or a giving time. Paul says to that church, each one of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Don't be pressured. Because God loves someone who gives cheerfully, relationally. That's the point. So, you know, whether you talk about Jesus watching the widow who gives her very last coin, a poor widow. So some of you will know the story is the widow's might. She gives the very last coin. And Jesus, watching her in the temple do that with his disciples, turns to his disciples and actually says, she's more blessed because she gave all that she had. We know some of these stories. So again, it's her relationship with God. She gave the last bit. A destitute woman gives her last little bit of money so other poor people could actually have their needs met. That's the sort of giving God is talking about in our new covenant. We don't get an amount. It's not 10%. It's not 20%. It's not 22.3% every three years. It's actually about your heart and your relationship with God. The early Christians in Acts, they sold their own property and gave the money to other people who had nothing. Again, it came out of their heart. So I... When I read Malachi and I read New Testament stories and teachings on giving, I see the same theme. It's, he's my loving father who provides, saved me, protects me. And so out of my, my response to the love that he's shown me, I want to be involved in the things that are close to his heart. I need to be involved in the things that are close to his heart. We give out a gratitude. We don't give a specific designated amount in the New Testament. There's never any command to non-Jewish believers in the New Testament, so Gentiles or people like you or me who don't have a Jewish heritage, there's never any command on a specific amount to give in the New Testament. That's absolutely true. But it does assume that we are all giving because it's a part of being a child of God in relationship with our loving Father. It's just assumed that we all do it. So it's not an amount... 
It's an attitude. It's a spirit. It's a heart. It's, it's a way of saying, God, you've loved me so much. You're interested in those needs, that person. I'm there. That's all it is. We're motivated by the relationship that we have together with God. So I started today by saying, what does the Bible actually teach about giving, tithing, as God called us to do it? Is giving just an Old Testament principle or is it taught in the New Testament? Are we, supposed to, are we expected to give? Am I supposed to actually be involved in giving? Well, you have to make that decision. We're now, you can take a breath. We are not taking up an offering. Right? This is not about manipulation. I'm just teaching you the key main principle that throws, flows through the Old and New Testament. The children of God live like a child of God and contribute to the things that God wants them to, to be involved in, both with their time, their heart, their money, their gifts, their abilities, their skills. We, if we're one of his children, we live like it all the time. So it's not the amount. There's never an amount in the New Testament covenant, but we all have to participate because that shows how much we love our God. That's the principle. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to finish this with a simple prayer. If you don't have a pen, I want you to take a pen out or get your phone out with notes. Oh, I'm not sure what it is on a Samsung. Do they call them notes? I don't know. It is? Good. Thanks, Sean. I'm going to finish the service with this. We're going to pray right now and I'm going to ask God on your behalf, is there something this week that he wants you to contribute to? I'm not going to manipulate it. Just see if God speaks to you. If he doesn't speak to you, no problem. If he does speak to you, then all I'm asking you to do is act like one of his children because you're on the receiving end of his generous love. That's all we're going to do, right? And I want, if God speaks to you about someone, some cause, some issue, uh, maybe your neighbour or work colleague or someone in the church or whatever it is, if God speaks to you, I want you to write it down and commit in your own heart to act on it this week. That's all we're going to do. So let's close our eyes. Father, your incredible generosity has led us to gather together and worship you, celebrating your victory, the cross, your son Jesus. And Lord, out of our love, our response of generosity, out of our grateful hearts, I simply want to ask you on behalf of everybody who's listening today, is there something that you want us to give towards today financially? Whether it's at our own personal expense, whether it's out of abundance, whether it's going to cost us to do it. But is there someone, some cause that we are aware of in our world that you want us to contribute to this week? And Lord, my prayer is that you would just speak to all of us, myself included, right now. We're just going to take a moment to listen to your Holy Spirit. Father, I just want to thank you for your generous love that saved us, is transforming us, provides for us, protects us. We're just incredibly overwhelmed by your generosity. We're unaware of it most of the time, but Lord, just to pause right now and to say, you are an amazing provider and protector. You are always with us, always caring for us. And Lord, my prayer is that we as a local church 
would celebrate and replicate the generous God that we call our Father. And I pray this in Jesus' name.